Well, good morning. Good to see all you guys this morning. Welcome to all those who are watching us online, live stream, or maybe during the week you're catching us. We've got folks all over the place who send us little notices from time to time. So I know we're, you're kind of scattered all over the country, at least watching us in different places this morning. But welcome to uh, Holy Week. All right. I know these things sneak up on us and we're moving 100 miles an hour and suddenly we're right on top of Easter. And today is a special day on the calendar of God. And I want to point some of that out today as we open up Holy Week by remembering this is Palm Sunday. And something unique took place on on Palm Sunday that led into the rest of that week. But I I want to set up the message by, by talking about Palm Sunday leads into a week that's trying to fix something. Have you thought about Holy Week that way? I mean, I know we, we go about the crucifixion, the resurrection, the events, the eating of the communion meal, all that took place in this week. But have you thought about this week is trying to fix something? And what's interesting is for you and for me and for anybody who's ever picked up the Bible and interacted with this Holy Week... Is it trying to fix something that you're interested in having fixed? Is Holy Week relevant to whatever problems in life you feel like you have, right? So I know I actually visited New York last week, so I came back with a little bit of an attitude. So I titled the message, what's your problem? There is something about going to a hockey game in New York City. Uh, you know, hockey is just built for violence. And so it brings out something in the fans. And so you actually don't feel safe no matter where you are. You, you definitely want to be pulling for the right team if you're there, uh, which we were. We were pulling for the Rangers while we were there. But what's your problem? That's what I want to know this morning. All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. And let's meet the moment Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday And we're just going to read a brief piece of this, and we're going to fast forward into the rest of the week. Matthew 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? All right, now you got to get the setting here to get this particular crowd. This is the beginning of people coming from miles and miles away to descend upon Jerusalem for Passover week. The greatest gatherings of all time in that part of the world, people would come to this setting. Now, before you over-associate this with devout religious people, this is a crowd gathering event, right? And it's going to gather all kinds of people into that crowd. So you've got travelers who are trying to find a place to stay. You've got vendors and commerce who are taking advantage of the idea that thousands and thousands of people are going to be here for several days. And we've got a lot of opportunity to make a lot of money while they're here. You know, if you can draw a crowd, you can draw vice as well, 
I don't know if any of you guys have ever watched some documentaries on what goes on during Super Bowl weekend in the cities where the Super Bowl is held. It's pretty disgusting. I mean, it's, yeah, I know a lot of it's like, hey, it's a great football game, blah, blah, blah. Uh, everybody who knows they can make a buck, they can engage somebody's vice sinfulness is there as well. So you're in Jerusalem and you know, there's, there's prostitution there this week. Planned, scheduled, organized. There's organized crime that's in the area there. People have come in who have power. They're going to be there that week. And so this is a little bit of a red carpet moment. There's all these people coming in, riding in to Jerusalem, coming through the city gates. So what we see happening with Jesus is not too unusual of what's happening with others. Who is this who comes riding in, right? It's, it's a red carpet moment. And you've got religious red carpet people. You've got guys who have religious backgrounds who are shaping and moving the things that are going on in religion. You have philosophical red carpet people showing up. Somebody who's written the latest thing that everybody's following. There's buzz and everybody's talking about it. They're all here. And then comes Jesus riding on a donkey and a crowd is gathered and they're, they sound like they're saying a lot of the right stuff, right? Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're excited about something about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. So if you were asking these folks, hey, hey, what's up with you, right? What, what, what's your problem? Why are you here in Jerusalem this weekend? Well, there'd be a variety of reasons why people were there. Maybe just looking for a fun time. Maybe they're just looking for something that satisfies some religious dimension of their lives. Maybe a crowd is gathered and, and, you know, that's what they do. I just gather with the crowd too. I don't really know what all is going on here, but I'm, I'm just here, right? Being part of the scene. But what's interesting is this is Sunday and you don't have to travel too far into the week to find these descriptions are going to go away. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting they saw something on sunday that didn't hold their interest on monday tuesday wednesday thursday right the next passage we're going to read from really just is to help us feature communion today that we're going to celebrate takes place thursday evening You go from crowds before him and following him to a dozen people in a little room on Thursday evening. And then the next day, you and I know the next day is the biggest event in human history. God himself has put on flesh and is going to die in our place. Where's the crowds for that? They're not there. Because they've all gone home. They're somewhere else in Jerusalem. They're doing something else. I don't know. They're at another red carpet event. They're at a rave. They're at some band that's playing on the other side of town. And somehow that stuff caught their attention more than whatever Jesus was doing that week. Which makes you ask the question to them. Hey, so Jerusalem, what's your problem? Because whatever it was about Jesus seemed really, really relevant on Sunday to their problem. But as the week moved along, Jesus became less and less relevant. 
Just a word to us who live in an information age where somebody's posting enough stuff to get enough people's attention. And all those posts are going to inform every one of us as to what's really important about our lives. Uh, By the time you get to the end of the week, nobody's posting anything about Jesus. Nobody's retweeting anything. There aren't any likes going on. Whatever he was on Sunday... He's not relevant by the time you get to the end of the week. But you and I know better, don't we? We know in all of human history, nothing was more relevant to our lives than what took place in the rest of that week. So be careful what kind of cues you take from people who post and retweet. By the end of this week, they won't know what they're talking about. But here's what Jesus says to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 26. So now we're Thursday evening, right? Matthew 21 is Sunday. By the time we get to Matthew 26, we're Thursday evening. And Jesus is explaining the communion meal. And we're going to celebrate communion today. So let's pay careful attention. Verse 26. says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's some some problem-revealing words in this passage. When you and I just read through this, there I circled these words so you could see them. These are problem-revealing words. These words tell us there's a problem that needs a solution. This is Thursday. By now, the crowds have already abandoned Jesus. But Jesus is revealing what's relevant to every person. And these three words are rather relevant. Now, I've got to be honest. I grew up where the taking of communion was a regular event that my family participated in every week. I was taught to treat it as it was important. I was taught not to miss. I was taught to show up at church, take communion, that there was something special about it, that... It was treated a certain way by my relatives who I respected. But I don't know that I could say I really engaged these three words very well while I was observing the practice weekly and reserving a place for that in my life. Keith, how well did you understand this covenant idea when you were taking communion? And and what about... The forgiveness of sins. What what was your understanding of that in that moment? And what about the kingdom of God? This is what Jesus chose to unpack when he said, "Let let me explain to you what this meal is all about. So let's unpack these words with Jesus. This is what Jesus says. He brings these words to bear on Holy Week. And says, these are relevant words. As a matter of fact, let's establish this meal so that we can remember these things. And so thousands of years from now, my followers will treat these words like they matter. 
And they do, right? So let's just pick these three words up today. There's more words. I'm not trying to say this is an exhaustive Holy Week presentation. But this is the words that Jesus chose to highlight in helping us understand the meal we're about to partake of. So, so there's, there's a covenant, right? Which means there, there is a relational problem situation that needs to get addressed. An agreement needs to be come to. Here's what the word covenant means. Wayne Grudem would define it this way. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Now, I got to be honest, I'm partaking of communion years and years and years in my life. I'm not thinking anything about, hey, this is about a legal agreement between God and man. I'm not thinking that. I don't know if I ever thought that, ever, in taking communion. That this was a meal that was representative of a covenant where an agreement was made. We're going to learn from Scripture. We won't look at it today. That agreement comes from God's side. We, we don't have much to offer in this agreement, right? God makes an agreement with man, and we're going to celebrate that in the form of communion. And then, as Grudem says... This agreement stipulates the conditions of their relationship. How many of us are aware that there are conditions for having a relationship with God? Now, quite honestly, I think all of us kind of know that. The real danger is not that we understand that there are conditions. The real danger is who makes up the conditions. Because all of us have a tendency to make up the conditions ourselves. Right? When some of us grew up in religious traditions that made up, quite honestly, those traditions made up conditions. And then some of us said, well, if that's what people did, they made conditions up, then I'm going to boot all conditions out the window. There are no conditions. Can I tell you there are conditions? The conditions aren't the problem. It's, it's just if you made up the wrong ones, that's a problem. But there are conditions. And that might be shocking for some of us. There are conditions for two parties to get along. That's what this covenant is about. And you and I have been watching something in the news. And so we, we kind of have a little bit of a fresh take on this whole conditional covenant idea. We've been watching this horrible war take place in Ukraine. And every once in a while we hear some really good news that, that there's potential peace talks taking place. And they're, they're having meetings. And they're talking through things. Well, you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to come up with a covenant. They're trying to make an agreement between two parties that are going to bring an end to the war. And it's really interesting that when you interact with war, this is really interesting when we open the Bible and we interact with the idea of war, we know parties are at war with each other. So we know who the bad guys are, right? We're watching horrible things being done by Russian soldiers under the leadership of Putin. And we're on the side of the good guys, Right? So we, we're, we're with the Ukrainians and we're standing with them and we, and we want relief from this warfare that's taking place. Right? And we've got history in these categories. Right? You've got terrible Adolf Hitler and the evil Axis that gathered together and came against the world. And so then there were, there were good guys and bad guys. There were the allied forces. They were the good guys standing in this war against the bad guys. And there's still that sense that there's good guys and bad guys in the war. 
How many of us know that you and I live in a spiritual setting where there is a spiritual war going on right now as we speak? There are headlines that could be published. And, and I, I, I'm not faulting anybody for this. I sit down every night intentionally and, and say, what's going on in Ukraine? How can I pray for these people? Uh, there is a spiritual war taking place that you and I ought to be very much aware that whether you sit down nightly and do this or you gather in your prayer closet, what's going on in the spiritual war? How do I need to be praying? Because there is a war taking place spiritually. And it's got casualties in it. It's got atrocities going on. There is massive suffering. Everything that you and I can see in the physical realm where we, we see burned out, blown up buildings. We see dead bodies on the side of the road. We hear the stories of what happened to them. Do you understand? That's a physical presentation of a bigger spiritual reality in our world. Our world is at war. It is a horrible war. There is suffering on a massive heartbreaking scale every day in that war. Now the question is, who are the sides in this war? Who's the axis and the allies in this one? Okay, we'll start with the obvious one. Satan is at war with God and God's purposes. Every day he launches new attacks. Every day He attacks people, he attacks locations, he attacks everything that has to do anything with God. He is coming after that. So if we're going to pull this into the conversation of a a covenant that creates a peace treaty, a peace agreement, is, is the Bible talking about peace between God and the devil when Jesus speaks of this covenant? This is the blood of my covenant. This is a peace treaty. Well, oh really, Jesus, between who? God and the devil? You do recognize, this is an interesting theological point to make, by the way. There is no forgiveness for the devil. There is no covenant for him. God chooses not to offer him a thing. You thought about that? It might change the way you feel about what you've been offered. That is, unless you haven't come in contact with the fact that you're not the good guys in this covenant. I know, we're Americans. We're always on the side of the good guys, aren't we? We pull for the right people in war. We're on the right side in war. We're not on the right side of this war. What's your problem? That's a major problem. This is that moment where humanity has kind of that Luke Skywalker moment. Where Luke finds out that Darth Vader is his father. Right? It's supposed to massive shock. Luke, probably the worst acting moment for that guy. No! I don't know. The slow motion mouth movement just doesn't do it for me. But anyway, he comes in contact with this crazy news. Your father is Darth Vader. And then the Bible turns around and exposes us to something like that and says, your father is the devil. And everybody here today is going, what the heck are you talking about? That's what the Bible says. You and I are not the good guys. You and I are part of why there's so much evil in this world. Why there's so much suffering in this world. Why are people hurt the way they are in this world? You and I have flowing in our DNA a problem. 
See, now if you don't get that, you show up on Sunday morning celebrating Jesus arriving on the red carpet, but you're not anywhere to be found later in the week. Because you don't get while he's really here. He's come to solve a massive problem. I wrote in your outline, the warfare in our world, personal that we're experiencing, cultural, racial, national, criminal, every form of warfare is the result of humanity being, listen, hell-bent on insisting on its own way. You want to explain Ukraine? You want to explain World War II? You want to explain what went on in your household last week? Humanity is hell-bent on having its own way. So if you greeted Jesus as he's entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, hey, Jesus, what brings you to Jerusalem? Well, I'm here to negotiate peace in the war. Really? Peace between whom? Between you and God. Would that shock you? For you to discover that someone's going to have to create an agreement for you and God to get along. Man, but I'm not that bad. I'm a decent person. You don't even know me. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect. Come on, Keith. I know I'm not perfect. Well, it's, it's a little worse than that. There's a bigger problem than that. See, this is why even today, lots of people can show up on Palm Sunday and cheer Jesus on. Following him. Remember it said they were following him, but they won't be following him at the end of the week when he's shedding his blood in their place because they don't get why he's here, right? We don't understand our own problem, right? So Jesus speaks of a covenant that's going to happen this week. And then he speaks of forgiveness, forgiveness. Forgiveness is a word that screams there's a problem. If forgiveness needs to come into a relationship, something has been done wrong. You don't forgive people for being different. I don't have to forgive you for being different than me. I have to forgive when something was done wrong. There's a wrong in this week that needs to get addressed. And Jesus brings it up here in this meal. Verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There is this sin thing that's significant in our world. I don't think the crowds that showed up on Sunday were showing up wondering, hey, Jesus, are are you here to solve the sin problem? Are you, are you here to forgive us of how we have offended God? Uh, this is not that crowd. And let's face it, I'm not sure today. I mean, we, we totally get there's sin issues. There's atrocious sin issues that are out there. Watching, again, watching the news, watching what has been done to people who just lived in a home in some village in Ukraine. The atrocities of how they were treated. The sin against them. We get that. We're outraged over that. We've, we've become a society that's become more outraged, rightly so. More outraged over, hey, wait. So there was a time period where some individuals just went and pulled people off another continent and made them slaves, took their rights away from them, forced them to live in a place and live in a way that they didn't want to. We called it colonial slavery. Wait, wait. So that actually happened. So now we're, we're outraged over that, that sin. 
Now, finally, it kind of showed up and became clear. Drug dealers. Yeah, that's, that's sin. If you've ever visited, matter of fact, if you've been to visit uh, the, the orphan in school that we support in Guadalupe, Mexico, you'll drive through a town that has been controlled by drug lords. And when you drive through it, it, it looks like a scene from Ukraine. It's just bombed out, burned up. A few houses with people in it, the rest of them are just, just destroyed. And when we first visited there, that was not that way. So there's suffering there. And then you and I are living with people who are suffering on the other end of the drug trade, whose lives are ruined and wrecked by the impact. So you know, there's something in us that says, yeah, yeah, those kind of sins. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. That's evil. I'm outraged about that. But what about the acceptable sins? What about my sin? What about my pride? What about my stretching the truth? What about my greed that puts my interest ahead of yours and you suffer in some way as a person in my life because I've got an agenda for me that doesn't include you a certain way. Did that thing that happened on Friday, did that have to happen for for that? Or, Or just for those miserable Russian soldiers? See, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Jesus is doing on Friday is for the the sweet little old lady who's standing there with a palm branch going, Hosanna, Hosanna. Nice as can be. You'd want her to be your grandmother and your neighbor and everything else you could think of. The blood being shed on Friday is for her. What is happening that week is relevant for her. It's relevant for each one of us as well. So Jesus, what brings you to town? I'm here to forgive your sins. And isn't it weird? It didn't draw a crowd then. And it doesn't draw one now. But you and I know, right? The Holy Spirit has allowed us to see the truth and the power of this. How relevant is that forgiveness to your life? Right? Be careful how you follow the crowds. By the end of the week, the crowds treat the most significant things like they're insignificant. And Jesus mentions one more thing. He mentions a kingdom. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. My father's kingdom? Is there another? Well, yes, there is. There are kingdoms of this world. There are kingdoms of the earth. So that's a problem. That there's more than one kingdom, that is a problem. Because a kingdom is a place where a king is reigning over a domain. That's what a kingdom is. And so what happens when you have more than one king trying to reign in the same space? You have a problem, right? This is what marital counseling actually is. There are rivals. There is war. Because there's more than one king. Or at least there's trying to be more than one king. So if I ask the question, so, so what's, what's your problem? How much of my problems are connected to who is king in my life? 
You thought about that? How much of my problem? Hey, Jerusalem, how much of your problems are connected to who's king for you? Alan Noble's written an interesting book called You Are Not Your Own. And he says this, our ills are grounded in a particular understanding of what it means to be human. We are each our own. We belong to ourselves. From the early political liberalism of the 17th century, this, and I say this carefully because this is, the, this is the thing about being a Christian in the world in this year and you happen to live in America. I love the country that I live in. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Everything about it is not right. Every philosophical principle that stood up and is written into our constitutions has got an enlightened, man-centered peace floating in it. So be careful how you become more American and treat the Constitution like it's more important than the Bible. Right? These are problematic ideas, and they came around long before you and I were here. They were part of the political and philosophical world being discussed in the 16 and 1700s, and poof, gave birth to a nation. Right? So this is an interesting point. From the early political liberalism of the 17th century with its language of individual liberties and rights, over time, Westerners began to think of themselves as naturally sovereign. I'm king over me. If I belong to myself, then I am the only one who can set limits on who I am and what I can do. No one else has the right to define me to choose my journey in life or to assure me that I'm okay, right? How arrogant of you to tell me whether I'm okay or not, right? <clears throat> I belong to myself, but the freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Once I'm liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my life. That sounds attractive until you take it on. And then it sounds exhausting. And it sounds like it will give birth to insecurity after insecurity after insecurity, right? I am responsible for defining what's meaningful in my life. Does, does anybody think they're well-educated enough to really figure that out? I got this. I'm going to define what's really important for me. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. This burden manifests as a desperate need to justify our lives through, listen, identity crafting and expression. All of a sudden, have you noticed in the last 10 years, there are more identity options than you can shake a stick at? And listen, I'm not trying to pick on something here, like it's my personal pet peeve. But, you know, when, when most of us were little and we were trying to figure out our identity, you know what was not up for grabs? Whether you were a boy or whether you were a girl. I didn't, I didn't have to figure that out because a king outside of me had already ruled on that. I didn't have to wrestle with that idea. Listen, everybody here who thinks you're doing a favor to young people by giving them this option. You are not, you are placing a burden on them that's crushing them. They're getting exhausted. It's exhausting to try and figure out whether I'm tall enough, whether my hair's the right color, my nose is too big. 
Much less to try and figure out at the core of my biology, am I really who my body says I am? There's a king, one king, who's already said something about these issues. The problem is when there's another king on the scene and wants to define these things. But because everyone else is also working frantically to craft and express their own identity, society becomes a space of vicious competition between individuals vying for attention, meaning, and significance. Not unlike the contrived drama of reality TV. That's a a good description. Vicious, vicious competition. Because see, I don't have the voice of the king validating me. I only have my own voice and the ones that I can generate. So you need to say something affirming about me. You need to say that to me. I need you to fix me. I've got a problem and I will not listen to the king. I need you to fix me. And so can I find some others who will go along with me, who will create something that you also will applaud about me? Can I, can I, can I rally some other people to that? Oh, and then I want to find out whose side are you on? <clears throat> are you on my group side? Or are you on that side? Well, I can tell by the way you post. I know immediately what side you're on. Welcome to cancel culture. Welcome to polarization. Why is our world this way? Because at some point, man decides, I will be king. I will label myself. I will create my own sense of identity. I will self-define and I will determine what's meaningful for me. Oh my gosh, you have no idea what job you just applied for. You just applied to be king and you're totally unqualified. And you have just signed on for the most miserable existence. It's a little better deal just to let the king be king. Michael Horton's written a book recently called Recovering Our Sanity. Kind of delves into this reality of who's reigning in us. He says, we fear anything and everything that we perceive as a threat to our reign. The extent to which we have lost the fear of God will increase our fear of everyone and everything else. If someone buys the worldview that says that the chief end of human existence is personal peace, prosperity, and security... This demand for satisfying immediate felt needs will override whatever scruples one might have against, say, abortion, divorce, abuse, or racism, or just about anything else. If I have self-labeled and my identity and the good of my life is bound up in something that I have created as the king of my own universe, and you threaten it, there's nothing I won't do, including uh, crossing a border in Ukraine and, and ridiculously taking human lives what looks like no stinking reason. But it's a reason for that king. It makes sense to him to do that. And so we make decisions on this list here. There are abortion decisions. There are divorce decisions. There are abusing people decisions. There are racism decisions that get made because I need to protect my identity. I need to protect the world that I've created and I've labeled for myself. He goes on and says, there are threats to my happiness. 
I'm scared of fill in the blank, right? If I just stopped and said, what, do you, what are you scared of, by the way, for you personally? Fill in the blank. I need to find other people who are scared of the same things. Then we'll express our group narcissism in chat rooms vicariously through the screeds of our favorite pundits. And then finally in the identity politics that has little concern for the common good. These are the deeper philosophical reasons as to why the world feels the way that it does, right? So Jesus makes a big deal out of this kingdom element. So we go from Sunday when Jesus shows up, where two days later, I'm going to read this passage to you, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is now having a conversation during Holy Week with people about what he's here to fix. I'm in Jerusalem because there is a problem. And this is one of the things he highlights. He highlights this kingdom issue, Matthew 22 verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Hey, Jerusalem, just want to make sure you understand, this is what's going on. This is Jesus speaking to Jerusalem when he comes and visits them. Hey, Jerusalem, uh, your problem is you don't come when the king calls. That's your problem. Your problem is you have labeled yourself something different than what's in this story. There is a king and there are servants. You want an identity? Here, have that one. How many of us love that identity? Servants of the king. You do realize that's how Jesus sees humanity. That's why it doesn't make sense to him that the king is doing something in the kingdom and everybody's going to join in, right? The king has decided honoring my son is of more value than anything else you're doing. And if you have your own king, though, your response is, eh, not for me, not today. I got other stuff to do. I'm not coming. That's a king problem. That's a king who's ruling in their own lives has figured out something else that will make me happy besides honoring the son of the king. Something else will make me happy. That's what Jesus is illustrating here, right? Michael Horton again says this, but what if God is against my quote, happiness as, as I define it. And for them, they defined happiness as farms and businesses and whatever you can get from that stuff, because it is shallow and short-sighted and rebels against his design. In our fallen condition, we're so befuddled that we do not really know what makes us or each other happy. Can I get an amen? 
God does not exist from my happiness, but I exist for his glory. And when I'm glorifying God, I am also enjoying him. Worshiping God is the flourishing of ourselves and those around us. So it's only in communion with him that I find genuine satisfaction, which can weather unhappy circumstances. I don't naturally know this because I'm a sinner. Rather, I have to be confronted with God in his holiness and majesty, except that I am the problem and then flee to his mercy in his son. So, Keith, what's your problem? Well, I can start in a lot of places, but you're looking at the problem. I am the problem. So, Jesus, what you doing here, man? Red carpet. Jesus interviews microphones. Jesus, why are you here? Why, why have you come? What brings you to Jerusalem? And he responds, well, I've come to dethrone you as king and set up my father's kingdom in its place. Apparently, he must have sounded a little bit like that, right? That's what he did on Tuesday. Made that sound pretty clear. Hey, my father has a kingdom. And he runs it a certain way and your servants. And when he calls, you come, but you don't come actually. You actually go live a life on your own for your own reasons and your own values. So Jesus didn't attract a crowd with these kinds of messages. So when he gets to the end of the week, the crowds are gone. So you and I are entering Holy Week this week. The question is, What's the problem that this week is trying to solve? May I go ahead and ask the band to come back up, Ronald? You guys can come back. I'll give you one vivid description, Gregory Kokel's book, The Story of Reality. What's my problem? He says, it's difficult to capture with words the desperate situation man is in. When Adam and Eve choose rebellion rather than obedience, everything changes. Their likeness to God is sullied, stained, polluted. Their relationship with the Father is ruined, dead. Their relationship with others is warped. Their relationship with creation is compromised. Their souls are morally twisted and broken, and their crimes against their sovereign incur a debt they cannot pay. With one act of self-will, man's world turns black. Instead of life, he finds death. His defiance, severing his soul's lifeline to God. Instead of freedom, he finds slavery. His corrupted flesh now ruling from within. And a new master ruling from without. The serpent who man obeyed in the garden instead of God. Humanity is in the deceiver's grip, held captive by him to do his dark will, and the snake will not let go. Oh, if the crowd had known that on Sunday... You are in the grip of Satan himself and you have no ability to get free from him. And you are so internally corrupt that you will never even want to. Would you like to follow me all the way to Friday? Because you need me to do something for you. 
that you can't do for yourself. Coco goes on and says, with each generation, man reproduces after his own kind, according to design. All born of Adam bear the earthly father's image, now broken. They are rebels, sinners, debtors, slaves. Like sheep, they are prone to wander, like traitors prone to revolt. In the words of the ancient Hebrew prophet, all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one man. Guilty of sedition against his sovereign, the king of the universe, is utterly lost. And he goes on and adds a little bit of weightier problem. And the king is angry. For man... This is very bad news. So, what's your problem? Is Holy Week relevant to the problems that you and I are trying to navigate? Remember, crowds gathered in Jerusalem. By the way, the crowds would have been there whether Jesus showed up or not. They were looking for something. They were looking for a life. They were looking for an upgrade. They were looking to connect with the right people. They were looking to brush shoulders with the, with the important people to help themselves feel a little bit more important. They were looking to break the monotony of their lives and just go do something different. That's why they were there. But they don't seem to have come to grips with they needed a savior to come that week. They had a problem that only Jesus Christ could fix. That was their issue. Let me read this one last passage to us before we prepare for communion. The Apostle Paul picks up this event of Holy Week and he explains it to the Corinthians this way. 2 Corinthians 5, 13. He says, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all. Why? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Boy, what, what if you got that on Sunday? Jesus what brings you to town? Well, I'm, I'm here to kill a lot of people. That sounds, that sounds bad. Well, it's a little different. I'm actually going to die in their place and transfer that death to them. And then what that death is going to do for them is it's going to liberate them from themselves. Listen, I get, there's another aspect of what Jesus is doing that that overcomes the devil, that will one day end up, we'll talk next week about a new heaven and a new earth and all that he accomplished in those categories. But do not read fast this too fast because when you and I walked in here today, when you and I did life last week, you know, the thing that sits closest to me as Keith, what's your problem? Me. How do I fix that? He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him. What news greets me today that I actually can follow Jesus, receive from his life in such a way that I no longer live for myself, but I live for him. I no longer have to self-identify. I no longer have to create my own labels and titles. I no longer have to sell everybody in my world that I'm really, really, really awesome. And you should feel that way too. And you should never do anything wrong. And I can never have parents that made one mistake because that would be terrible and it would harm me forever. I can get liberated from those kinds of things and take on a life that's been given to me by God that I could die so that I could have life. So before we celebrate communion today, we celebrate communion with a mindset that we are in the Father's kingdom. We are in the Father's kingdom. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are in this kingdom now. That means there is only one king in the kingdom. So no one gets to come into the kingdom and retain kingship. No one does because it doesn't work. If there's another king, my internal conflict will never go away. My issues will never go away because I will continually want to reign in the place of God. So here's some really, really good news. Today, you could take off the crown and set it aside and bow down and worship the one true king. You, you can do that. That's available to you because of what happened this holy week, those years ago. You, you can stop reigning in your life. And be honest, maybe, maybe to you are saying, well, why the heck would I want to do that? Okay, well, you might not be ready to do that then. You know who is ready to do that? Come to me, all you who are wearied and heavy laden. Come to me, every one of you who are tired of trying to be king and you've been crushed by it. If that's who you are this morning, the invitation from Jesus is, why don't you come and let him be the king? Come and just surrender to the king. Come take your life and say, I'm no longer the one calling the shots. I'm taking off my crown. I don't have to manage this thing. I don't have to make it happen. I don't have to self-justify. I don't have to feel right about myself. I just need to, to figure out what's the king say about me and about my future and what he has for me. So before we partake of communion this morning, if you're here this morning, if you're watching my live stream, you can dethrone yourself this morning and give that throne over to Jesus Christ. That's why Holy Week exists. Hosanna, son of David. That son of David is a title for the king. As a matter of fact, remember, Matthew 21 goes on and says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Your king is here. Jesus, what are you doing here in Jerusalem? I've, I've come to be your king. And you need him to be your king. And I do too. So Palm Sunday. Would you like to receive the king? Right, let's pray this. If you would, let's pray this. Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, there are crowds that hang around religious settings all the time. 
some of us have been in those crowds. I have been in those crowds. But Lord, you came. You came to come be my king, to come rule in my life, to be God, to take that responsibility away from me. I don't have to be God anymore. I don't have to figure it all out. I don't have to find reasons to like myself or have others like me. I just need to hear the king say what he's saying about who I am and what he has for my life. So God, this morning, I just, I just pray this to God if you, if you mean it. I want to get out of the king business, God. I don't want to be king anymore. I want you to be my king. I want you to rule over my life. I recognize this week is a celebration of what it took for you to make an agreement, a peace treaty with me to come into my life. For me to belong to you and be in your kingdom forever. Thank you for the cross on Friday where you took my place and you took my death and you shed your blood for the forgiveness of my sins. Thank you for the resurrection on Sunday where newness of life became available to me in my old condition. Lord, today, Palm Sunday, Lord, I made you my king. Reign in my heart forever, I pray. Guys, we're going to celebrate communion this morning and intentionally try to take some time to make communion to mean to us what it's supposed to mean. So if you'll get up from where you are, there's several stations where you can go and get uh, the bread and the cup. There's some up here in the front. For those of you guys, there's a couple of stations in the back. Get the, the bread and the cup and then just return to your seat. Don't take communion just yet. We're going to pray together before we do that and receive communion together. Exalted Son of Glory, humbly came down, wounded for the broken, bore the sinner's crown. Through the willing death, Jesus, 
this gracious cup, a life spring overflowing, poured out for us. He has conquered every sin. trust in Him. Jesus, hunger and thirst for You, Lord, as we remember Your sacrifice. We see wounds from Your hands and pierced Extravagant love, oh how great the price. Now our lives are yours. The cup we drink, the bread we eat, reminds us you are all we need. Makes us long for your wedding feast. cup we drink, the bread we eat, reminds us you are all we need, and makes us long for wedding feasts. Often when we celebrate communion, we benefit from the Apostle Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired account to be reminded to do this in remembrance of me. And in that, there's an explanation for the bread and there's an explanation for the cup. But Jesus kind of brings all this together. And so I'm actually not going to have us do the bread and then do the cup. We're going to do them together in just a moment. But can you just gather something into this moment with you? Now, I grew up, like I said, uh, getting around communion every week. And it was amazing how it didn't mean anything. It was a routine and a ritual. So I want this to mean something to us. The Bible wants it to mean something to us. So can I just read, now that you have some fresh thoughts about these three words, this covenant, this peace treaty with God. That's what this meal is. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's Palm Sunday. That's why Jesus was in Jerusalem. To bring a peace treaty to a people who were at war with God and a God who was at war with those people. To bring forgiveness 
no matter how innocent we think our sins are or no matter how atrocious we feel our sins are, Jesus rode into Jerusalem to solve that problem and to invite us into his kingdom where his father would reign as king over our lives. Do this in remembrance of that. Let's take the bread. Let's take the cup. Lord, in that moment with your disciples, you gave thanks. Oh. You were on the eve of the cross. You were moments away from the unexplainable weight of the wrath of God being set on you. And you were giving thanks. You knew a cup was going to be passed to you that would be quite different than the cup that we just drank. Lord, on Thursday evening, the weight of the world was sitting on you. Blood began to pour out of your skin as you sweat. And you were celebrating communion with your disciples. Lord, how mind-blowing it is to think you were grateful that this day would be available to us, that we could be forgiven, that we could be at peace with you, no longer on the wrong side, no longer part of the devil's warfare. We would be at peace with you and we would be part of your kingdom forever. So, Father, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for entering on a donkey to accomplish some things for us that we may not have even fully realized we needed help with. But you were there because we had a problem we could not fix. And God, today we just say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week celebrating this week, Holy Week. Get some extra time, some extra moments just to be in the presence of God this week. Love you guys. Great to see you guys, if only electronically. We hope to see you soon. Hope you are well as well.